0: Hello and welcome to Health Views. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Now let's check out today's view. Well, first of all, thank you for joining me today, and second of all, congratulations on your amazing cookbook, Spice Box Kitchen. If we may, I would like to actually first start with you, and then we'll kind of get into the cookbook itself and cooking a little bit. But I think that your own story is actually pretty interesting. You know, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a doctor. Fortunately, that happened. I love the fact that we're doctors and internists talking together, but you must have had a different journey or a little bit different because you are now both a doctor and a chef. So tell me about this desire and when it started for you.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, because in my memory, I always wanted to be a doctor. I remember that when I was five, I got this Fisher-Price toy doctor bag kit with plastic stethoscope and blood pressure cuff and all of that. And it was really exciting. And so that's my memory of things. But I also always really loved playing around the kitchen and even more so than that, eating. So I think anyone who ends up being a cook in any professional capacity has to love food first. And so I know that that was probably my first hobby is eating. And it doesn't mean that I wasn't picky at points in my life and that I loved everything, but I really have always enjoyed flavors and tasting and and making food. And so that was really one of my earliest hobbies. And my first cooking class was actually as part of a summer program on French language and culture that I took when I was seven. And so we made quiche and French grated carrot salad in that class. I still remember that. Wow. And, you know, that was really fun. And I, as I look back, I never really planned that I would do anything with food in any formal way. But I, whenever I had the chance to do something elective that, you know, I had creative control over and could do anything that I wanted to, it often involved food. For example, I remember still with French. I really loved studying French from when I was seven. When I was in high school, in AP French we had to do an oral presentation and it was to teach something so an instructional presentation and i remember that my friend in the class with me and i did a presentation on how to make savory french crepes and so that was already cooking and I think we also made the same one for some sort of fundraiser. I can't remember those details. But I think whenever the chance came up to do whatever you want, do something creative to fulfill X objective, it would always be food for me.
0: I love that. And I love that you said you have to start with food. One of my favorite things to say when I've got a buffet in front of me is I love food. So you (laughs) love cooking. I love food. This is good. I also can identify with your cooking in, uh, I think it was fifth grade, we had to invent something. So I invented a recipe and it was a no-bake cookie. And so, yes, everything surrounds us with food. So you go to med school, you choose internal medicine, and you're still cooking, you're traveling, you're, I'm sure, accumulating recipes, you're doing all of these things. How did it come about that you are a doctor chef? Tell me a little bit about that journey.
1: Yeah, I, I really think it was serendipity. So I was about 10 years into my practice as a primary care doctor. And, you know, quite honestly, around that time, something kind of burnt out. And but not really sure what my next move would be. And, you know, years later, I actually found a, a paper file of things like of clippings, actually, from newspapers, journals, whatever, that I just put different things in. But the label I put on the folder was non-clinical medical jobs or something like that. And so I was clearly seeking something, but I didn't know what that was. And none of those things that I had put in that folder actually called to me. Like, I thought, no, that would be worse. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I don't like that. And it, it wasn't that I didn't love being a doctor. It was the actual way that my practice was running with, you know, various constraints. And just the way that I was able to practice medicine was very different from the ideas that I had going into it. So, you know, I had some great mentors in primary care and medical school, and they were really kind of more old-fashioned kinds of doctors. Mm -hmm. And that was really exciting to me. You know, I remember in my very first rotation with a family practice doctor, we did house calls, you know, that sort of thing. And another of my mentors was a family practice doctor, the only doctor on a small island. Actually, so he was, it was like a Norman Rockwell kind of doctor, and he knew everybody. He was, you know, integrated, he was part of everybody's family on that island. And that was also really exciting and glamorous to me. And of course, neither of those models probably would be realistic for most people right now, but there is something in the way that those doctors practice medicine that I just felt I didn't have at all. It was something that was creative and personal that I felt was missing from my practice. And so, you know, I, I was just kind of moving along thinking, huh, I have to figure something out to make this more fun. And I also felt that I wasn't helping my patients get better necessarily. It was almost like, you know, treading water with a lot of the chronic conditions that we all treat. So it just happened to be that a friend of mine was going to Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, which is this annual CME course.
0: I looked it up and I thought I never had. even knew that I could go and take a cooking course for CME. It looks amazing. Right.
1: It's amazing. And you and everybody should come. <laughs> it's in February in Napa. And I'm, I'm actually going to be on the faculty this year presenting several times. So I'm excited about that.
0: Nice. Congrats. But this was back
1: in two, 2012 that I went for the first time. And I didn't really know anything about the course, just like you. I hadn't heard of it. But this friend said, you know, I'm going. And at that point, I hadn't used up my CME funds yet. So I was like, okay, that sounds good. I'll go. And it's not far away. I can drive there. And I went and it was literally that light bulb moment that we all dream about that I really didn't believe actually could happen. But what it was and what the course is great at is it combines all the evidence in nutrition, research and practical applications. So it's both like, you know, the usual CME review, but then very practical things like workshops. How do you actually communicate this in layman's terms to your patient in ways that will inspire them, right? So motivational interviewing type stuff. But the other half is the food. And so this is the part that actually is makes it the most unique conference. At most medical conferences, as we all know, the food is terrible, right? The food that they feed you.
0: Right, right. And terrible, terrible for food. you. Yes.
1: It's terrible for you. It's, there's not much thought put into it. Probably not much budget put into it. But because this conference is co-sponsored by the Culinary Institute of America, you know, the preeminent culinary institution in this country, they, they can't serve bad food. And so the food that was served at all the breaks, and it was just like the, the most food also, like the most frequent servings of food that I've ever had at a conference, All the all the little breaks and the dinners and all of that, not only was it extremely delicious and seasonal and fresh, but it was also educational. You know, it was all based on the Mediterranean diet and the labels for all the food wasn't just what is in this, but sort of why, why this is good and how it's different from the usual. So, for example, if it were a muffin at breakfast, it would be a tiny like two bite size muffin. And it would have, you know, at least half whole grains. And so it would be labeled with all the things that made it better for you. And I just thought, this is brilliant. Like, not only can yes. I eat it, I can see why this is good. I can explain to patients, you can still enjoy food and you should. I love food as much as you do, or maybe more. And yet, I think it's such an important thing to talk about with your health that we are not talking about. And that was it. Literally five days after that conference, I taught my first cooking class to patients.
0: That is so awesome. Awesome. So you, this is something that you've incorporated into your practice in medicine, but you also do more. You do classes. So it's not just your patients that are benefiting. I know that you've also had customers come in for classes. You are really an advocate for eating plant-forward, vegetable-forward foods.
1: Oh, yeah. I love it. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, right? So food service of any sort is a lot of manual labor, a lot of standing around. And just a lot of hours, no matter what it is, whether it's cooking in a restaurant, preparing food and teaching food, there's a lot involved in all of that that's behind the scenes. You know, any teacher knows that there's so much more that goes into teaching a one-hour class than the actual class itself. But with teaching cooking, there's actually, it's like a combination of being any sort of teacher plus as if you had your own restaurant. So there's all the procuring of ingredients, designing the recipes, preparing them, and then figuring out the lesson plan, all of those things. And so those days that I teach the classes are my longest days of work. You know, we all work very long hours as doctors in the clinic, but nothing compares to the time and the energy that I put into my cooking classes. But it's one of those things when you love something, it also energizes
0: you. So it's, it's
1: really my passion.
0: Has it made you a different doctor? Oh, definitely.
1: Definitely. So Actually, I don't know if it's okay for me to read an excerpt from a really nice email that was sent to me today by actually not my patients, but someone who a stranger actually who bought my cookbook and who has had great health benefits from it. Please can, do. Can I read that? Absolutely. That? Because I think it. I think it really sums up,
0: and hopefully, I can get to it. I bet you can. Go ahead and try.
1: Oh yeah, here we go. Okay. It really sums up why I wrote the book and the, the benefit, I think, of my practice of culinary medicine has for people in a way that is beyond what I thought I could do. Okay. So I'll just, I'll just read you this because the reason why this is the second or third time this reader has written to me was because she had gotten good feedback from her doctor after using my book therapeutically for the last month or two. So first she tells me very nice words, of course. Your book is truly my guiding light these days and our meals are delightful. I have given the book to our daughter who at age 58 has had three strokes since May and had Crohn's. And I recently had a history move from my back and told the doctor about the book. She said that she was glad I told her as her own diet. So another doctor's diet was terrible, and she wants to make changes, but didn't know how. And so they, that doctor and this patient's primary care doctor told them they did not learn nutrition in medical school. That's actually the other big part of this, right? All of us have right. experience that we didn't learn practical nutrition. We might have learned about you know, two feeding formulas and all of that and how what to ask when you get an RD consult in the hospital. But that's about
0: it. And it was an elective for me. It was it wasn't even something that was part of the curriculum. It was an elective.
1: Yeah, exactly. So then in this note, she continues to tell me about all the recipes that she made that she loved, And she says each and every recipe is delicious and your way of spices and herbs is magical. And that's I'll, I'll get to the most important part. That's medical, though. The best part of all of this are the two letters my husband and I have received from our doctor with our wonderful numbers that are so much better than ever before. My husband is now off diabetes medication. I mean, this is incredible. And then she says, for a long time, I felt very alone in my cooking and eating habits. But now I can see the light ahead and enjoy much better health because of it. So, you know, I read this. I just got this today. And I thought, I, this is what I wanted to accomplish yes. with my work. Not just my book, but my work overall. And it just means so much to me to hear about this from patients. And I have gotten, you know, these sorts of messages several times since I started doing this 10 years ago. So both in how I counsel patients in the office and through giving my cooking classes where, you know, I think of this. I used to think of food and cooking as only my hobby that I really love and nothing that was, you know, powerful in the way that science is powerful. That, which is why we learned all that science in pre-med and medical school, right? We needed to know things that civilians didn't know because we could help them with that. And this is cooking. This is things that, you know, we learned from our mothers and our grandmothers and not something that you have to have really great SAT scores to be able to do. And yet, The best feedback I've gotten, very meaningful feedback from patients, has all been since I've talked about food. I don't think there's any bigger recommendation than that for everyone to talk about food and cooking with their patients. Like people say, I've changed their lives. I've reversed their diabetes. They've lost weight. They had given up on ever feeling good. And now they do. And it's with this, you know, food.
0: I can see and hear how gratifying that is to you, that this is, again, incredible it's different than that one-on-one conversation, right? It's, it's reaching the world in such a very different way through food as medicine. So let's talk about your cookbook. Why a cookbook? There's a lot of cookbooks out there. There's a lot of healthy cookbooks. Why did you have a cookbook in you that needed to be born?
1: I think you've kind of honed in on the, with that last thing that you said, it, it needed to be born. I think, you know, there's so much work that goes into a cookbook. And I think any author, whether it's, of you know, fiction, nonfiction, or cookbook, when they put all that effort into making a book, it's because it, it has to come out. Like, it's there. there, you actually can't stop it. And, you know, we're lucky if we can convince a publisher that it has to be out in the world. And so I think... You know, I've had my blog, Spice Box Travels, which is about food and travel from around the same time that I went to that culinary conference, a few years before, actually. So that blog in its early days actually wasn't all about healthy cooking because I wasn't all about healthy cooking then. <laughs> and then it, it transformed. And over the years, it has transformed after I went to that conference and have done this work. And so... My initial thought was after having this blog for 10 plus years, I'm like, oh, I have so many recipes here. I should just put it all together in a cookbook. And then when I finally did sell my cookbook, my editor said, no, they have to be new recipes. And I thought, oh, <laughs> <Wait a minute. laughs> oh no, this is going to be a lot of work, right? So my initial thought was just a place to collate all these recipes I would put together over the years sure, and have it in a more permanent and beautiful form that people could have, that my kids could have you know, just for posterity and get my words out there. So that was my initial idea. And then I also thought, well, okay, if I have to make this something new, I I have to make it as useful as possible for people. And so, you know, since my classes are in person, they're limited people geographically, although now we've just recently started doing them virtually. So that's opened up a little bit more to people. I thought, Maybe I can share some of what I teach people in the book. You know, it's it's not, it's actually very different from the classes, but the same themes. And so I have a whole section in it. The first section is on Healthy Cooking 101, where I share a lot of the same information I share with patients in my classes. So, you know, what is healthy eating? It's a very general user-friendly approach that's kind of one-size-fits-all for everybody. How to get started. You know, a lot of people are ashamed or embarrassed that they don't know how to cook as adults. And that's actually my favorite student. I love teaching someone who's new. And so, but I, I like to acknowledge that a lot of people maybe don't know what you need. So I talk about pantry stocking and the basic equipment that you need to be able to cook healthy food.
0: And it's not and complicated I, is what I loved about it, Linda. It is. Thank you. It is very basic. And it's, it's like, at the minimum, you need these things. And then you can grade up if you want these. But you do such a nice job of just really making it approachable for the average reader. And I'm sure that's what your patient also experienced, where this isn't overwhelming me. This is something I can see myself making as I start looking through the book. So I, I love that you incorporated not just recipes and how-tos, but the why and why this is good for you. You also have like little icons of your spices and veggies and what those bring to the recipes. And I thought that that was actually so clever and also educational and helpful at the same time.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, as you can imagine, a lot of thought went into all of those elements. And, you know, I have to thank my excellent editor for sometimes forcing me to do something that I felt like, oh, that's not that important. I don't really want to spend the time on that. I think she really knew she's an experienced editor and just like, you know, we get clinical experience. She had a lot of editorial experience and what she was really looking for, because she, she really believed in this book. She said, this book needs to exist because there isn't one like this. And so you had asked me what is different about it. And there are a lot of healthy cookbooks out there. I like to start by saying it's not a diet book, right? This is about healthy eating of food that you will enjoy. So I think that a lot of cookbooks fall into those two camps. One of being some, you know, prescription, fast type of diet, and something that's very restrictive and not sustainable and not balanced. And those tend to not focus on flavor. And then there are most cookbooks which focus only on flavor without thinking about health. And I knew that there had to be a different way to do this. And that I knew that over all these years of teaching patients that I knew how to do that. I really, you know, when I, I taught that first class, I didn't know how to teach people how to cook. I'd never done it before, but it actually was pretty natural for me. And I knew that what I was getting at was people really just want to eat food that tastes delicious. And so I've put a lot of thought into this over the years of what what makes food taste good and what makes this particular dish that isn't so good for us, what are the key elements that make it that dish? And how can we make that a little bit healthier? That's really my approach. And you know I've gotten good at it because I've been doing it for so many years. And I think it makes a huge difference for people because none of us can stick to a healthy diet if it doesn't taste good.
0: So one of the things in addition to taste is I feel like your book is a feast for the eyes. And so I don't know whose idea, if it was your editor, if it's yours, but it's also so beautiful to just even go through the pages and to just, oh, visualize what this tapache, Mexican spice fermented pineapple drink. It's like, I want to make that. That looks amazing. And so that, oh, I think, you. really adds to the whole, I want to try this recipe part of things as well. What, why the beautiful pictures?
1: So I think that is also something that differentiates it from most healthy cookbooks, right? That most of those are just plain old text. And of course, part of that is, is budgetary. It costs a lot to have full color pictures. And I wish that I could have had a picture for every single recipe. It's really about 25, 30% of them. And so I had to, I had to actually also think about which ones to highlight, but all the best cookbooks have beautiful photography. And I know that people respond viscerally to beautiful images. And I'm just very lucky that I found the best food stylist and the best photographer who, you know, I hadn't So my food stylist is actually one of my culinary school classmates. So I knew what she was like to work with. And I'd seen some of her food styling that she ended up doing after she graduated from culinary school. But I really chose her because I knew that I would be able to work with her. Mm -hmm. And then the photographer was a friend of hers that she had collaborated with. And when I looked at her photos, I knew that she had the right feel for me. She really, I think, brings food to life, right? If you look at those pictures, it's more than just the light. There's movement in them.
0: They're, they're there's, beautiful, There's yeah.
1: feeling in them. And I think I could not be luckier than to have chosen the, this team that I did. And they worked really hard with me to do this photo shoot as well.
0: I believe yeah, it. But
1: basically picture, you know, we, we food should be a feast for the eyes, and therefore in a
0: book, the photography is crucial. So one thing that surprised me that isn't in the book with the recipes is nutrition information. You don't break everything down. Tell me more about that decision as well.
1: Yeah, that definitely was a decision. And it was actually my choice because, again, you know, my whole problem with how we were taught or not taught nutrition in medical school was that it was all at that level, that molecular level of numbers and data. But none of that actually translates to anything that makes sense in a way to patients. And I also, because I didn't want this to be a diet book, a weight loss book, I feel like when you put that nutrition information, all that people look at are the calories. They may look at fat and sugar, but that's not holistic. So I guess that's really what I'm saying is that my approach to this is to make it very user-friendly and holistic. And because I knew myself when I was writing the recipes that they were designed to, to be healthy, I didn't think that it needed to be there. I actually thought it would be a distraction And not accomplish my goals of making this, you know, kind of just telling people like, you can trust me, I'm a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I went to culinary school that these are delicious and I promise you that they'll be good for your health. But that's really what I try to achieve and why we designed those icons of, you know, this recipe is good for you because it has kale in it. Or this recipe is good for you because it has, you know, cinnamon and that can help lower your blood sugar and your blood pressure. Those sorts of things. That's what people really want to know. That's what they need. They don't need to know. I mean, they need to know to some degree, it, yes, if something has a, a gram of sodium in it per serving sure, versus a hundred milligrams. But those are the kind of guidelines I always really stick to in my recipes anyway. And I think it doesn't really have much meaning for people otherwise.
0: Yeah, I believe you. So one of the things I thought it would be fun to do is to cook one of your recipes and try it and eat it with you. And so what I decided, and I just found out as I was kind of reviewing and serendipitously that what I chose was the potatoes. They're called Canary Island Wrinkled Potatoes or Papas Arrugadas with romesco, um, so a romesco sauce. So I have it here in front of me. I boiled up the potatoes earlier, left them at room temperature and made my romesco sauce. So I'm going, to, I'm going to eat while we talk a little bit. So speaking of sodium content, oh, look at this. Mm-hmm. Like They're just a little bit crispy with a little bit of salt on the outside that you can see. I use some fingerling potatoes. They're golds. And I'm going to dip. So this recipe wants you to put the potatoes into three quarters cup of kosher salt. And so as an internist like you, when I see that, I was like, oh, my gosh. That seems like so much salt. But before we start talking, I just want to eat in case there's a reaction that I need to give. Oh my gosh. All right. I'm in love. This is so amazing. The skin is a little crispy and the inside is almost creamy. I have to confess, I didn't make the romesco just like you said, because I didn't have everything. I used chipotle peppers instead of anchos. I used canned bell pepper. I didn't have blanched almonds. So I just used almonds. And Mm -hmm. I think that was the only thing. But this is, this is outstanding. I would feed it to my family. Well, I'm going to feed it to my family tonight. And I'm already marking this recipe. And I love that it turns out this was one of your very first recipes that you actually served after you went to school. Did I get that story right?
1: So it, the recipe actually is adapted from a recipe at Healthy Kitchens Healthy Live. Okay. So way before. So even more kind of, I guess, elemental in my my origin story that it came from that conference. And I think that to this kind of moment that you're having of discovering this flavor Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's a healthy part of the Mediterranean diet is exactly how I felt when I went to that conference and ate that food. Like, I can't believe this is healthy. I can't believe this is good for me. And actually, at the conference, they actually do give you the nutrition breakdown. That's part of the educational process there for each recipe. So but I want to ask you about the potato. Does it taste like it has all that salt in it to you?
0: No, not at all. Mm-mm. It's not like, right. so this is a, I don't want to add salt, right. but it doesn't feel right. like it needs salt either. Right. Yeah.
1: So it, most of that salt doesn't get absorbed at all, actually. It's part of what gives the texture to it, including the creaminess inside. It kind of just seals it. And this, this recipe is based upon the traditional Canary Island technique of cooking potatoes in seawater. So that ratio of water and salt replicates the salinity of seawater. And, you know, that image was just so beautiful to me that oh, you would yes. basically just get a bucket of seawater and maybe start a bonfire on the beach, boil it and put your potatoes in there. And so I I loved that idea, which is why I tried that recipe the first time. And then... Yes. People always ask about the salt, rightfully so, but it doesn't get absorbed because the the skin is intact. And so it can't be, the, the skin is actually the barrier. And I don't actually know why it doesn't actually retain that much of the salt either, but it doesn't, you know? And so I feel like they taste just right. In terms oh, they of the do. Saltiness. Yeah,
0: they really do. When I poured off the water and then it, and then you keep kind of cooking over that low heat to wrinkle the potatoes, it seemed like a little salt formed, formed at the bottom. And I just kind of even love that whole imagery of the sea being part of what's left behind and the minerals that would be in that seawater. I didn't have that, of course, because I just used the salt. But it's it's just even lovely the way you connect the recipes to stories and, and that visualization that I was able to have. And I think that you also commented even from your own experience earlier, which is the delight of making something wonderful. It feeds our soul as well as our bodies.
1: Yes, right. And and that is actually one of the things I like to say in my classes in terms of the importance of plating something nicely that, you know, first first of all, we eat with our eyes first. But I also say to people, even if you're just cooking for yourself or especially if you're just cooking for yourself, you should make it as beautiful as it can be because that is part of the eating experience. It isn't just, you know, it isn't just nutrition. And it isn't just shoveling some food down so you're not hungry. It, it should be a part of your day that is for you and feeds your soul and makes you happy because it it has that potential every single time.
0: Yeah, it really does. Another place that I just, I have to share as I was reading through your cookbook, and I believe it was the uh, Chilaquiles Verdes, I don't know if I'm saying that right, with baked tortilla chips. I actually got weepy reading the story about you and your neighbor. Would you mind telling that?
1: Actually, so it's my my neighbors, Rick and Teresa, who I had lived next to for the 20, coming on 24 years I've lived in San Francisco. They're literally kind of right around the corner from us. So basically their kitchen looks into my kitchen. And I'm talking about them in the past tense because Teresa died a few years ago and her husband, Rick, just moved away. To a senior living facility a couple of weeks ago. And it really, it was very sad for me, actually, because, you know, it's not often that people, especially in modern society, know their neighbors that well, but they were truly family for us, you know. So they're Mexican Americans. So they were my kids. abuela and abuelo and they took care of them when I was just starting my practice and they were babies until I could get them into preschool until they were old enough you know I I really relied upon them like that and you know we would cook for each other and it would always be it was just such a nice thing which I I really don't have with anybody else at this point is you know part of it was proximity part of it was that they were from an older generation where it was very normal for them to be like Hey, do you have an, you know, can I borrow a cup of sugar kind of thing? Yes. No one really does that anymore, but we would do that all the time. And, you know, after Teresa died, Rick was on his own in his, you know, late 80s, early 90s for the first time and cooking for himself. So I would actually start to also give him food, but he he never really wanted to be sort of taken care of. So he would return the favor by, you know, when he got extra food, he would give me some too. And so we actually always, you know, food was our our language of love for each other. And, yeah, it was just very special. So chilaquiles are one of the recipes that Teresa would make quite often and surprise us with. You know, there was that. And she also had a really delicious rice pudding recipe, which Rick, so, you know, Rick is mentioned in this book. And, you know, I gave him a copy. And he he reads, he's, he's kind of funny, actually. He reads everything really carefully, underlines and highlights things. And he was reading this carefully and he's like, hey, I'm famous. I'm in your book. And so when he realized that, he was so excited. And then he said, did you put her rice pudding recipe in there? I said, oh, oh no, I couldn't because it, it had too much sugar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it was still delicious and one book. of his favorites, obviously.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, every recipe has a story. Like every recipe in this book is either, you know, in honor of somebody inspired by somebody someone fed me something for the first time because I think for me you know food is actually how I it's probably how I perceive life actually how I move through the world and you know, a lot of my patients now even before I had my cookbook chose me because of my focus on either nutrition or cooking So I have a lot of restaurant chefs as my patients, which I love. Yes. Because then they'll just talk to me about it. They know I understand what their world is. They know that I understand what their struggles are. And they also trust me that I understand that it has to taste good. Whatever I'm going to tell them to improve their health will also be tasty. And so I think it's just the way that I know how to approach things and people.
0: (laughs) And let's go back a little bit to your connection to people through the book and your dedication, which was very simple for Mama. What's that about? So
1: my, it's really interesting. My mother, I didn't realize until I had my first child that my mother actually doesn't like cooking. And, but it was just, I thought she did because she cooked every night (laughs) when I was growing up. So, you know, we always had. That's how
0: you eat, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) If she didn't cook, you didn't have something to eat. (laughs) I, I assumed it meant that she loved it. But then when I had my first baby, I thought that, you know, when new grandmothers came over to help their kids, it was to either change diapers or do all the cooking that I couldn't do at that time. And she didn't. Instead, she um, was like cleaning house and gardening for me. And like my garden had never been so weed free, all this stuff. And uh, anyway, so that's my, I said, do you not like cooking? It was a new thing for me. She said, she said then, and she has said repeatedly since then, you're such a good cook now. I don't need to anymore. You know, of course, I, I don't see her that often, so I don't get to cook for her that often. But I think, especially since she never enjoyed cooking, it meant that much more to me that she did it. Yeah. Like, she always cared about our nutrition. We always ate kind of the same way that I talk about eating here, like 75% vegetables and just a little bit of meat or fish my whole life. And, and she, you know, worked full time, was tired when she came home. But she would—that would be the first thing she would do when she came home. She would start cooking dinner so that we didn't have to wait that long. And so that w- I would hang out with her in the kitchen. And she definitely, you know, appreciated having me around to hang out with, spend time, and quote unquote help. It wasn't really always a help when I was little. Mm-hmm. And I remember she would also let me, you know, make dessert all the time because that's what kids like to make—is mainly dessert. And so I would make a mess. It would be the sort of thing where it would be like. Every single dish in the kitchen would be out for one little thing, and I think she would clean up after me. At any rate, I associate you know this 1970s kitchen that I grew up with with avocado green appliances, <laughs> you know, very simple kitchen. I still can picture being in that corner next to the stove with my mom, and so it was our special time to bond. And yeah, you know, I just I my mother is just an amazing woman, so. I, she deserved to have this dedication. Then, just like my neighbor was like, hey, I'm famous. I'm in this book. When my, my parents got this book, my father said, hey, no fair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's always the mom, right? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. So you you use some interesting language. It is a vegetable forward recipe book. I had not seen that before I had senior cookbook? What does that mean? So I think
1: they use this term more in the restaurant world. And you can imagine every single word of this title was parsed over. And I think we had like eight back and forth meetings about what the ultimate title and subtitle should be, because we really wanted to, this is the first thing people see. And this is how you capture your reader. We wanted to get the readers that I wanted. I wanted people who love food, who needed to work on their health, pretty much. So at first you thought, well, you know, it's not vegetarian, because I wanted to include some pescatarian recipes. And that's a little clunky to say vegetarian and pescatarian recipes. Right, right. A lot of people are familiar with the word plant-based, and that often, most often is used to refer to a completely whole foods, plant-based or vegan diet. So that was off the table too. Plant forward is another word that's a phrase that other people also use, which is kind of like, plant-based light. And that was, we thought about that one for a while. But then I thought, you know what? I actually don't like that we say all the time that we eat plants. Do we eat plants? No, we eat fruits and vegetables. We eat beans. We eat whole grains. I wanted to move again from kind of jargon and terminology because that was actually kind of reminding me a lot of the nutrition teaching that we got in medical school. Like I wanted to actually talk about what this was, which is vegetable. And so that's how the vegetable part got substituted for plants. And forward is just a way of saying that this is mainly what we're about, but it allows room for some exceptions. (laughs) I love it.
0: And then you also organize it geographically, based on places Mm -hmm. that you've been, based on places that you love, and also because related to your husband, places that he loves that you've been because of him with Trinidad. So what made you decide to make it kind of geographically based as well? Was it really just as simple as, I've been here, I'm familiar, and these are my foods?
1: So initially, and as I've kind of said many times during this conversation, the book changed a lot during the process of writing it from how I initially envisioned it. So my initial vision was a more typical breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert organization that most cookbooks have. And there are so many, you know, cultural influences on my cooking, because that's just how I eat. I like so many different kinds of food that it didn't feel cohesive. And I showed the list to a friend of mine who's not a big cook, but it's a big reader. And she was like, I don't get it. I don't understand. What am I supposed to do with this book? I don't understand how I'm supposed to find what I want to eat.
0: Your focus group was one. It was good. Yes.
1: (laughs) And I thought, huh, this is interesting. You're right because I know that maybe I want to make breakfast, but then I have to look at this whole list and maybe it doesn't really make sense together. And so I thought, okay, is there another way I can organize this? And then it it ended up that the recipes did, you know, I I don't have infinite influences. I have certain influences culturally that I often go back to, and that's how I ended up with these four sections. So, you know, it's it's California, where I've lived for the last decade plus, and which really, I think, highlighted the beauty of produce to me, because the produce is all grown here, and it's amazing. It's not anything like other produce I've ever had anywhere else. And then the second section is on Asia for my heritage and where I spent time living and working and studying abroad. And then the third section is on the Mediterranean. And I chose that because of the Mediterranean diet for the first reason. And for the second reason, because it includes a lot of spices, right? So we know that the Mediterranean diet is one of the best studied and healthiest heart healthy diets. Spices are all anti-inflammatory. And so for health reasons, that's also really important for our health. But also they, for me, really are what make food not only taste good, but conjure up a place. And so because I love travel so much, that's the reason why this is all focused on spices. And so that's how the Mediterranean section came about. And the last section is Trinidad, where my husband is from. And that section has gotten the most interest because there are there are actually literally I think only two other cookbooks on Trinidadian food that you can get, and one of them is really only available in Trinidad or for some exorbitant price on an internet site I won't mention. Um, <laughs> 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 and so it's not that well known to people, but it's like really delicious and really special. And so what I did with that is I made it kind of the original flavors and recipes from Trinidadian classic, but a little bit healthier, more vegetable forward or vegetarian in some cases, but still with all the essential flavors that make it taste like Trinidadian food.
0: Yeah. One recipe that I'm just infatuated with, but it seems like such a commitment, is the bus up shut. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes,
1: bus up shut, which is, you know, basically, it's the local way of saying bursted up shirt because it's basically a parasha, right? So a flaky Indian flatbread that in the cooking process, at the end of it, is basically beaten between two wooden paddles until it's all shredded up like a shirt that's been destroyed in the laundry. And it's so tasty. It is so good. It takes forever to make because you have all these resting periods, but it's it's worth the effort if you're stuck at home one day. But it's one of the things that, you know, I, I think I say in the story with it that my My nephews by marriage laughed at me about because I said, Oh, what is this bursted up shirt? You know, I laughed it too carefully um, and enunciated too well. And so they still remember this, you know, 30 years later, they still remember the first time Auntie Linda said bursted up shirt. (laughs) It's really delicious. And I I encourage you to try making it.
0: You know, I noticed, I noticed too, it it was a long time for the recipe, but a lot of resting. It doesn't look hard. You just have to be there. You just have to be there yeah. and have patience. And so I will definitely exactly. try that one. Absolutely.
1: And and in that recipe, I substitute half whole wheat flour, which they never do in Trinidad. Which like, you know, that's a very basic like baking substitution that you want to make something a little bit healthier. Half whole wheat instead of all-purpose flour. And I was just really happy that it worked. I was afraid it would ruin the texture or the flavor, but I actually think it's it's even better.
0: I love it. I love it. One of the things I think as physicians behavior change, trying to help people adopt healthier habits. BJ Fogg talks about his tiny habits, behavior change. Sometimes you do have to do something for day after day after day. Sometimes you just have to try one thing. And so that one thing that people should try that could make a difference in their health or their eating going forward, what, what would you recommend that be?
1: You're really going to limit me to one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just want to just one for now, but then I'll let you expound. But if you had to choose one, what would it be as people want to eat and cook healthier?
1: So I always say eat more greens. I actually think that old fashioned statement applies to most people. Most people don't eat enough greens. And there are so many benefits for us, both nutritionally and health wise to eating greens for, you know, all the potassium, all the fiber, and all the other nutrients that we get from them, that that actually, that one action alone will improve anyone's diet, even if they're not changing anything else.
0: And if I was going to look into your spice box and say, you know what, there's there's only three that you can keep. I'll give you three on that one. What three Thank would you. they be?
1: And is this based upon flavor, health properties, or anything?
0: You You know what, I want to Th- these are the ones I'm going to take to the desert island. I okay. I need them to help me stay alive, to stay interested in the food I'm eating or, or cooking on that island, I guess. And it's going to make me want to eat or provide nutrition.
1: Okay. All right. So I'm going to cheat with the first one because it's actually going to be something that many people consider a spice. This is actually a spice blend, which is curry powder. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> But in that, I'll hone in on turmeric, which is one of the main ingredients in it. Because we know, everyone knows now that the one spice that people know about for health properties is a potent anti-inflammatory. So good both for chronic disease prevention and also for outside, just with my ankle on that boulder on the island. So we get curry powder, plus it will make anything taste good. Then I think next, we need a spice that will add a little bit of sweetness. And so since, you know, maybe on this island, we don't, we don't even have sugar to access. But we all like a little bit of sweetness. So you're going to have some cinnamon. Because cinnamon to me actually has a sweeter taste than actual sugar, which is great for people who are trying to cut back on their added sugar intake, but want to satisfy, you know, a sweet tooth. And we also know that it helps with blood sugar control and can lower blood pressure. So very, you know, it's like one of the most basic spices that everybody has in their spice cabinet. It's very powerful. And then for my third spice, hmm, I think I will say, I'm I'm torn between two types of pepper, so either black peppercorns or some kind of chili pepper. And so that's both for flavor. And so I'm going to call it pepper and that's cheating again. So <laughs> cheating
0: that. You're a cheater.
1: <laughs> so black pepper actually it has a compound called piperine in it which increases the bioavailability of curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric. So you need, you actually need the black pepper to get the most benefit out of the turmeric, which is in our curry powder. So I've, I've really expanded our spice box yes, by you have. those two things in. Yes, we <laughs> have. And then if you chose the chili pepper instead, because I think I like spicy food, a lot of people do, that can really ch- transform any recipe as well. Some people think that maybe the chili peppers can help with metabolism. I don't know if the jury is, you know, really decided upon that yet, but capsaicin, which is, you know, what makes it spicy, we know is good for topical pain relief. So that definitely should be part of the spice cabinet, as well as your first aid kit.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, as well as your first <laughs> aid kit. I love that. <laughs> I am out of my questions. Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you about that I haven't?
1: Um, I, I think you covered everything. But I think what my ultimate message would be to people is that they should cook for enjoyment and pleasure. And that is the number one reason for cooking, but that nutrition should be part of that. And it should be not considered something separate. It should be part of the same exact process. And that's what I approach my my book with. And then you know, for physicians to, even if they're not a great cook or don't cook that up in themselves, first of all, they should get into the kitchen so that they actually can improve their health, but will be able to talk you know, genuinely to patients about food and cooking, but just whatever they can do to bring up this idea and let patients know that what they eat is probably the most important thing they have control over next to exercise and sleep, right? And that if we don't talk about that with them, they won't think it's as important as the pills that we prescribe to them. And so I think that's really my ultimate message to my physician colleagues is that you need to actually let patients know that you care about what they eat. And if you're not comfortable, you know, doing the counseling, that's what our, our RDs and health educators can help with. But that it's just important just to mention that to your patients.
0: Well, and I I have had patients come back with me and say, well, I, I found this pill. Should I take this pill for nutrition? Or it's got yeah. freeze dried things. And I'm like, you don't need more pills. You just need more vegetables. If you want yeah. a healthier immune system, it's, it's those things that you talked about. You just need to eat better, sleep better and get a little bit more exercise. Yeah. One thing that uh, let's spend just a minute on is weight control. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of patients want to exercise their weight away, which never works. Right. Are there things that you actually prescribe or talk about? I know, again, when you look at your cookbook, it's full of fiber. Mm -hmm. It's full of it's filling food, which helps. There's not a lot of sugar. There's there's fat, but it's good fat. It's nuts or different kinds of it's olive oil. Are there things that you recommend when it comes to weight loss for your patients? So
1: I actually always refer back to, you know, the healthy plate model that we share with patients in the clinic, because I, again, I think it has to be made simple. I think when people get bogged out of details, they, you know, lose, lose, lose a forest for the trees. So I show them that and I say, if you eat this way, if you literally make at least half of your plate vegetables, and I actually say aim for 75%. So, you know, aim a little higher than if you fall short. You'll still get to the 50% because they are so nutrient-dense, right? So they have tons of fiber. They have all the antioxidants, vitamins, and minerals. And yet they're very low in calories. And they're filling. So you that will fill you up so you can't actually eat more. And then if you are also making your, your grains no more than 25% of the plate and they are whole whole grains, there's more fiber there it doesn't leave you much room for the the other stuff. And I don't like to say the bad stuff, just the extras, right? That's how my kids learned it in elementary school. Oh, that's an extra. I I actually think another important message is, you know, with the exception of poison, you should never say no to anything because there are many reasons why people eat what they eat. They like it. It means something to their culture. It reminds them of someone, their family, whatever it is. If you vilify a certain food group, or ingredients, then it's not sustainable. So my whole goal is that I'm making lifestyle change, helping people make lifestyle changes through how they eat. And to do that, I have to say, hey, it's really okay. You know, even though I don't think you should be eating that much sugar, you know, certainly on your birthday, go for it, eat that birthday cake. You know, if it's any sort of celebration, that's your time to have that. But maybe what you need to do is, you know, eat a huge salad before dessert time so that you're not, you won't have room for it. And that's really, you know, I keep it again, very basic like that. And if they want more details, we get into it, or I, you know, work with a registered dietitian for it. But I don't focus on on the pounds so much. Most people, though, if they if this is a big change in how they're eating, they will lose weight automatically. And that's the beauty of it. Because I think when people focus on their weight, as the only goal, you're bound to lose. And it's very frustrating and discouraging. And then people give up.
0: I totally agree. Versus here's what I can control, which is what I eat and cook and put in my mouth versus the number on the scale. Not so much under our control. Yeah. This has been fabulous. Your cookbook is fabulous. I'm very proud of you, even though I have no right to say that. But just as a colleague, as a physician, you have made such a contribution that will even just, I think, outlive your practice. And it's certainly... A way to have extended your practice in such a delicious way. So thank you for, for doing this for all of us. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Any parting words?
1: No, just thank you so much for having me, Deb. As you can tell, I could talk about this forever.
0: Um, <laughs> and it really means
1: so much to me that you are proud of me and, and mainly that you recognize also how this can help people and how it's an important addition to how we practice as doctors that if I can achieve that even for a handful of people, I feel like I fulfilled what I wanted to do with this book.
0: Well, I think you already have. So so congrats and kudos to you. Thank you so much. I really, really do thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse Podcast with Deb Friesen MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have, and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.